This is a 980 CKNW podcast. You are live with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here in studio. I've got my guest co-host, Graham Williams, uh, here with me today as well. Thanks for coming on in. Always happy to be here. Got a cool show, actually. Uh, we'll be talking later on about the new Samsung Samsung, Samsung Galaxy S9 and S9 Plus just released uh, yesterday here in Canada. Should you be upgrading to this brand new super hot smartphone? Well, we've got Patrick O'Rourke from Mobile Syrup to give uh, us his hands-on review. Uh, he's actually had both of them uh, for the past two weeks, so uh, he'd be the man to talk to. And uh, smart homes and smart thermostats, uh, there's a large portion of homes out there that have electric baseboard heaters that don't work with uh, things like Nest and Ecobee or Ecobee. Well, we've uh, got a Canadian company, uh, Misa, that has a new solution for that. And uh, we have a lot of tech to talk, Graham, especially when it comes uh, to news. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, but... Amazon, uh, one of the biggest e-commerce giants out there, they have their Amazon Prime video as well. And you actually get that when you subscribe to their Prime membership. Well, now we're starting to get some numbers as to how they make their programming decisions. And we're seeing that uh, their Prime video service is designed to really drive new Prime memberships. Which, I mean, makes a whole lot of sense. Um, You know, it's one of those things where I personally subscribe to Prime because uh, I like the two-day shipping or the same-day shipping, or in some cases on some products, the same one-hour shipping. Um, So finding out that I have Prime Video was kind of a cool thing for me, and it was kind of a bit of a novelty until I realized they had the Man in the High Castle, and they also had um, American Gods. And I looked at that stuff and went, these are things that I actually want to buy, or actually want to watch, pardon me. Um, And so I actually went through the process of uh, hacking my Vizio TV to make it play Amazon Prime as opposed to <laughs> streaming it to my Apple TV through my phone because I didn't have the app at the time. Yeah. Um, so now the Apple TV four, is, uh, Apple TV 5 has come out and there's the Amazon Prime app, so I'm watching it that way. But it actually is, it's factoring into my decision because I was kind of looking at it and I'm making money on Amazon Prime, quote unquote, because I'm getting my free shipping and whatnot. But the value of Amazon Prime Video actually far exceeds what I was getting in free shipping at this point when I factor in like 30, 40 bucks for a season of television. It's pretty good, right? I mean, they're trying to compete, I guess, with Netflix. Uh, they're making their own original shows. They also have a library of uh, uh, you know, older shows uh, as well. But the numbers are interesting. So uh, in 2017, uh, they had a total U.S. audience of about 26 million viewers, uh, which includes uh, its originals as well as other shows it licenses from other companies. But here's where the numbers start getting interesting. Uh, the Man in the High Castle, the... TV show that you mentioned that uh, Amazon makes costs $72 million to produce and market. But they can see, because it's all digital, that it drove over 1.1 million new Prime subscribers. So that comes out to a cost of roughly $63 per new Prime subscriber acquisition, which, you know, is less than the annual Prime fee of, you know, 100 bucks. And when you look at that, I mean, that's factored. That's one television show. So that's one facet of Prime. So when you factor in other television shows and the free shipping and all the other sort of stuff, Amazon Prime Music that comes with it, it seems like Amazon's got a bit of a winner on their hands here. Well, so it gets even more interesting. There's another show on there. I haven't seen it. Uh, It's called Good Girls Revolt. Uh, It's uh, cost $81 million to produce but it only drove 52,000 first streams, like new viewers. So again, compare that to The Man in the High Castle, which had 1 million uh, new uh, subscribers. This one only had 52,000, which made it a cost per new customer at $1,500, more than 10 times the cost of a one-year Prime subscription. Guess which show got canceled? (laughs) Oh, poor good girls are fault. 
Sorry, yeah, and I mean, there was a huge outcry from the fans of uh, the show. They were really upset because they said it was actually a really good program and they don't understand why it was canceled. Well, now we can see it all comes down to dollars and cents. Well, this kind of, and so this is something where I kind of look at Amazon, I look at Netflix, and I even look at uh, Apple, what they're trying to do with their original programming. And maybe this is the type of thing where you do have an a la carte uh, option for shows. I mean, I know a lot of people out there who would have paid for a second season of Firefly. So maybe your first season is paid for by the streaming conglomerate. And the second season, it's almost like a Kickstarter. You want the second season, pre-buy it. Well, didn't they do that with uh, Veron Kamars, that TV series? They, they did, did a yeah. Kickstarter campaign. Yeah. And, and I mean, then they put out a crappy movie. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's really the thing is, I mean, you're you're kind of rolling the dice as to whether or not this season would be good. But if we're passionate about these television shows, we absolutely love them. We want more of them. Uh, maybe that's it. You stream the first season and then if you want it, you foot the bill for the second and the third and whatnot. Also in the uh, news this week, you're tuned in here to Get Connected. Uh, Spotify is being sued. Spotify is being sued for the, to the tune of $1.6 billion. By, uh, by who? By a company called Wixen. And this is actually isn't the first time that they've been sued. It's over something called mechanical royalties. And mechanical royalties trace back to the invention of a very prestigious device, the player piano. So these okay. were the pianos. <laughs> these are the pianos that had the paper rolls in them yeah. that would play hit tunes uh, without actually having someone sit down and play at them. If you've opened, if you watch the opening of Westworld, uh, you've probably seen a player piano. Yeah. At this point, so the idea here is that when you buy a CD or you buy a song off iTunes, you own that song, and it's a essentially a, you you pay the mechanical royalties on that once. Whereas with Spotify, because it's streaming. Um, these are paid every time the song is played and they have to be paid in a different way. And Wixen is saying that uh, not that the royalties are being paid, but that artists aren't being notified on paper. On paper. Yeah, because, you know, back in uh, 19 diggity whatever, uh, when you were listening to a player piano, it was hard for artists to keep track of those player pianos. So the manufacturer of the player piano would have to notify the artist when one was made so that royalties could be tracked. Of course, everything is tracked digitally nowadays, but Wixen is saying, according to the letter of the law, you need to notify artists on paper, and that's not being done to the tune of $1.6 billion. That is so stupid. I'm so tired of this stuff. (laughs) But, you know, you look at these music uh, streaming services uh, like Spotify, they're the biggest in the world now. They're still not making money. Uh, you know, Spotify is not making money. Apple, it looks like with Apple Music, may be making money. But they don't, they don't break that out separately. They don't break that out separately, yeah. but it looks like, uh, anyway, it's a profitable enterprise for them, whether it's done through the actual streaming or whether it's done through selling the hardware and whatnot. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, this is a challenge. Artists are actually making money out of it, which is a good thing. I think that's primarily the thing that we want to see. But these streaming services, like, when was the last time you bought a CD? When was the last time you bought a music track? I I don't even remember. It's been years. I don't even remember. And, you know, we were kind of all up in arms about the idea of digital rights management on music and not being able to copy it from place to place. And I think the idea of music being accessible everywhere for a low monthly fee kind of got over those uh, little quibbles that we all felt about not owning our stuff. Uh, I mean, I know for myself personally, I've got 600 DVDs stuck in a couple of Ikea bins, and they're probably the most regrettable purchases of my life. So, where, where, do you still have them? I still do. I, I know in my garage, I have like hundreds and I don't know what to do. I think I'm actually going to see if I can maybe donate them to the New West Library. I think that's my thing. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. I'm be, sure they're going to want They'll be happy. That. Oh yeah. Video cassettes and uh, DVDs. Yeah. A sealed copy of The Way of the Gun. Fantastic. <laughs> well done. That was going to be worth something someday. I know, but no they're just ever. taking up room. Like I tried, you know, looking on Craigslist. Can I sell these things? 
they're they're worth almost nothing. Yeah. So I'm thinking maybe like a library or a school or maybe someone who's in desperate need of a lot of coasters. But, you know, back to Spotify and these music streaming services, uh, you know, is there much future as far as competition? Like if one of the biggest streaming services in the world for music, Spotify, can't make money, uh, how do the little guys compete? You know, like, is it just going to be an Apple Music and Spotify world? I, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the smaller players, you know, we've seen services that are dedicated to jazz, dedicated to classical music, dedicated to higher quality music. So, I mean, as long as your niche service, and niche services are probably going to be more expensive, as long as your niche service can find that Yeah, profit. but niche, like Spotify can go, hey, uh, I like that other music service that does the jazz. Let's just copy that. <laughs> Or let's gobble them like up. There's, there's no, yeah, there's no barrier to entry there. I mean, I mean, the biggest thing is going to be getting the licensing. And, uh, you know, Spotify may be able to come in and throw some money at it. Or it may be, you know, less obtrusive for them to just pick up that uh, that startup or whatnot. Um, you know, as with anything else, I think having another big player rise in the industry, it's going to have to be something disruptive that happens there. So whether that's a telecom or whatnot, who knows? When we come back from the break, still more tech to talk here on Get Connected. Apple purchases Texture, the... Netflix of magazine subscriptions. What does it mean? You'll find out. Stay tuned. You are back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here in studio today. We still have lots more to talk about on today's program. We'll uh, be chatting with some folks uh, out of Canada here that have developed a smart thermostat for folks that have electric baseboard heaters. Uh, A lot of the ones you see on the market now, like the Ecobees and the the Nest thermostats, don't always work well with those. Well, we've got a new solution for those uh, folks that do have the electric uh, baseboard heaters or electric floor heating. Uh, And we'll also be uh, getting the lowdown on the new Samsung Galaxy S9, a hands-on review from uh, one of our friends over at Mobile Syrup, Patrick O'Rourke. But right now, uh, I want to talk about an interesting uh, story that broke this week. Uh, Apple has uh, entered uh, an agreement to purchase Texture, the the Netflix for magazine subscriptions. On the line to uh, help us understand what that all means, we got our friend Max Greenwood from techvibes.com. Thanks for joining us, Max. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me, Mike. So for our listeners out there that don't know what texture is, uh, maybe give them the lowdown on that first. Yeah, so I mean, you nailed it. I think the easiest way to describe it is like the Netflix of magazines, right? It's essentially a virtual magazine stand uh, based off of a subscription model. It's about 10 bucks a month. Uh, in Canada here, it's nine ninety nine a month. And it's really sort of, uh, it, it was pitched as, more or less an app for people who who don't really read magazines end-to-end. I'm not sure if there are people who still read magazines end-to-end, but it's that idea that you have access to, like, about, you know, 200-plus magazines that you can go in, uh, take a look at individual articles or profiles or news pieces, and then kind of switch gears and read something else. You know, it has... um, it covers everything from media to technology to fashion uh, to sports to really kind of gaming, everything in between. So it's sort of, I guess, like that option to people who don't want to uh, own physical magazine subscriptions or have a physical magazine, but still kind of like to browse through it and and not have to you know face these paywalls or anything like that. Well, if you look at the list of magazines that they have, it's actually like good magazines. You think sometimes with these subscription services, they might not be the cream of the crop, but there's everything from, you know, Variety to Women's Health, uh, Us, Consumer Reports, GQ, Rolling Stone, Cosmopolitan, National Geographic, Sports Illustrated, uh, Reader's Digest, Vanity Fair. I mean, it goes on and on. So it's not a bad deal for 10 bucks a month. Like if you had to buy those magazines, uh, you'd be broke. (laughs) 
No, 100%. And like the, the good thing for us Canadians, at least, is it also has a, a fairly good representation of Canadian content. I mean, it has like Chatelaine, McLean's, uh, Sportsnet Magazine. Um, and it's funny, actually, a few uh, publications like Sportsnet Magazine sort of made the choice to cease their physical publication and go with something like Texture because they realized that they had more engagement and they could kind of focus more on the digital aspect of things and, and improve their article quality that way. So now uh, it looks like Apple uh, wants them. Uh, wh- why do you think they made that move? So, I mean, there's, there's been a little bit of talk around it. I think it's, it's, a, it's essentially trying to bolster what Apple News is doing right now, right? So Apple News has uh, this sort of like uh, lease or, or agreement with several sort of outlets. But now um, the Apple's head of media, uh, his name is Eddie Q. He came out recently after the texture uh, announcement or the texture acquisition. And, and said kind of like, we're committed to quality journalism from trusted sources, and, and we really want these magazines that are a part of Texture to keep producing uh, really nicely designed and beautiful designed, uh, engaging stories for users. So to us, or to me at least, I think it's sort of an idea that they want to kind of, I guess, partner with media journal or uh, journalism or, or outlets like that and, and bring them into their world, whereas you often see outlets like Google or Facebook kind of bashing heads with, with media outlets, uh, whether it be like that recent Facebook announcement where they're taking away uh, media from the newsfeed or things like that. And I think Apple's trying to do their best to kind of extend like an olive branch and say, hey, we'd like to kind of work with you on this while at the same time, you know, bolstering our Apple news service. Looks like a kind of a steal of a price uh, as well. Well, it's a lot of money, but $400 million? Yeah, so it, it's actually interesting. I mean, the price sort of just broke, and, and uh, as far as I know, I think that is a steal. I, I mean, to Apple, that's kind of just like pocket change. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. They, they, uh, went, they went in the sofa cushions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, they, they managed to scrape by for this one. Um, and uh, when we kind of look at the owners, it's actually like a, a lot of different uh, media conglomerates who sort of come together and own um, – uh, texture, which is sort of uh, issued by Next Issue Media, actually. So you see, like, it's uh, Condé Nast, Meredith, Rogers Media, Hearst, uh, News Corp. A lot of, actually, of the, the outlets who publish these uh, publications inside of New, uh, or sorry, inside of Texture. And Rogers, for, again, the, the kind of Canadian look into it, owned 14.1% of uh, Texture. So I'm not exactly sure if that will break down into 14.1% of that $400 million. But it's, it's interesting to look back at these numbers because um, KKR, uh, a private equity firm, uh, invested $50 million into Texture back in 2015, and it was reported that as, as part of this deal, they would actually get that money back. Uh, Apple would give them that money back so they could sort of retain full ownership of, of Texture. And $400 million, like you said, nothing to laugh at. But when it comes to Apple and, and bolstering their subscription services, it seems like sort of um, a no-brainer to add something like this to their roster. What do you think? Is this a good thing for print journalism? I know uh, magazines have been struggling uh, over uh, the past uh, uh, few years, uh, you know, with the whole move to digital and everyone getting their information uh, on, on the web. Do you think Apple can uh, uh, help this, this uh, industry? I, I think so, personally. Um, a lot of people might not agree with me, but the reason I think it would be a good move is is if Apple starts to move towards this sort of <clears throat> cohesive or all-inclusive subscription model, right? Like, I'm speculating, but I could see down the line them sort of offering like a 15 to $20 package where you get Apple Music, you get unlimited movie rentals, uh, and, and access to their original content, which they're actually pumping 
billions into now, and you get texture, you know, all for this sort of low price. Uh, and that will, again, just sort of bolster uh, everyone who's, who's taking in digital media, right? And right now, texture is offered a lot through subscription models already, like through Rogers or Rogers in Canada or Sprint in the States. And I'm, I'm kind of the, that firm believer that if you put it in front of more eyes, only good things can happen. I'm, how Apple will treat that in the future, I'm unsure. But right now, I think more people reading it is, is kind of just the best way to look at it and the best way to take that positive approach. I wonder if this is uh, going to start something with some of the other uh, big tech companies, like even Facebook. I mean, they rely so much on uh, you know the traditional uh, print uh, companies, newspapers, and magazines uh, for all the news in their news feed. Do you think we could see any acquisitions uh, on that side? See, I'm not sure, actually. Like You would think so, right? You would think that they're sort of all looking to to enter this market where, you know, there's been such a focus on quality journalism and not misleading the public and not, not misleading your, your user base that, that something like this where you have such a roster of already, you know, tons of publications with massive clout in the industry that you would want to partner with them and do anything you can. But, but right now, I guess Apple kind of has the upper hand and the balls in Facebook and Google's court. I mean, it's hard to say. Facebook is sort of right now doubling down, like I said, on, on taking away that sort of uh, fringe content and, and focusing on family and friend posts. But we'll have to see. I mean, I, I would love to say that as a journalist. I mean, hey, by all means, if, if you're fighting over my content, hey, I'll, I'll welcome the fight. But yeah, we'll see. We're talking with Max Greenwood from techvibes.com, a fantastic uh, website uh, for all your tech uh, industry uh, news, uh, and we've been chatting about Texture. Uh, Apple has uh, purchased the magazine subscription company for $400 million. What it means, uh, I guess we'll only find out uh, over the uh, the next couple years. Thanks again for joining us, Max. I no problem, Mike. Thanks for having me on. When we come back, we still have lots more here on Get Connected. We'll be uh, chatting with Patrick O'Rourke about uh, the new Samsung Galaxy S9. Should you upgrade from your current phone? We'll find out. You're listening to Get Connected, brought to you by London Drugs here on the Chorus Radio Network. Back after this. You're back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here in studio. We talk a lot about uh, connected homes uh, here on the show, and uh, one of the big things are uh, smart thermostats. Uh, so a lot of folks uh, out there probably have uh, things like uh, the Nest thermostat from Google or uh, the popular Ecobee. But uh, there are some homes uh, that uh, don't work with those particular thermostats. On the line, we've got uh, Joshua Green uh, from Mesa. Thanks for joining us today. No problem. Great to be here. Joshua, you guys have uh, a new thermostat out in the market for connected homes. What, uh, what type of heating is your thermostat aimed at? Absolutely. MISA is aimed directly towards homes that heat with electric baseboard heating or electric fan force heating. Uh, so about two years ago, um, I was doing home energy audits and really uh, encouraging people to use things like programmable thermostats and even smart thermostats uh, to help with their energy conservation. Uh, and I discovered that there was this gap in the market for smart thermostats, particularly for controlling uh, high-voltage electric baseboard heating. Uh, and uh, so, as you mentioned, Nest and Ecobee currently do not work with uh, those types of heating systems. So over the course of a year, I kind of really looked at the opportunity and uh, said, you know what, we can do this ourselves. So uh, we then proceeded to... Uh, to start building our own, and uh, fast forward almost two years later, and now we have MISA, which is the first smart thermostat to work with electric baseboard heating, 
uh, and we just started shipping two weeks ago, so we're very excited. And you're Canadian, which is cool. Absolutely, yeah. So the product is uh, designed here in St. John's, Newfoundland. We have a team of about 25 people working on the product. And then the product is actually being manufactured in Markham, Ontario. So fully Canadian product. Uh, but our sales are both in Canada and the U.S. And currently it's about 50-50 split. Uh, uh, so we have pre-orders uh, now um, that we've been taking over the last year. And like I mentioned, uh, the market is both 50-50 between U.S. and Canada. Well, it's, uh, it's interesting. It's kind of a confusing area. I, I know I'm trying to look into it for my home. I have electric uh, uh, baseboard heating as well. Not electric, uh, hot, hot water baseboard heating, which is a whole other story. Uh, but I know a lot of people that have the electric baseboards, and, and they just couldn't use some of these cool programmable uh, smart uh, thermostats. Like, uh, do you find a lot of confusion in the marketplace? There is, yeah, because uh, when as soon as you say the word voltage, and whether low voltage or high voltage to people, not everyone knows exactly what you mean. Um, but uh, uh, you talk to any electrician who's putting it in, and they'll absolutely uh, know what you mean. And uh, so we saw people going so far as uh, they really, really wanted the Nest thermostat. They would put in these relays for a smart, uh, for a low voltage thermostat, the Nest, to control high voltage heating systems and. Each of these Nest thermostats cost $300 plus a $50 relay. Uh, and then you had, on top of that, people that have electric baseboard heating typically have multiple thermostats per in their home. So they may have 5, 10, 15 thermostats in their home. So it was just uh, not economical to, to take the Nest approach. So where our thermostat is only $125, uh, it becomes economical to then only uh, have to buy, let's say, five or however many thermostats that you need for your home. Yeah, it's funny because I actually installed a new heating system in my house back last year, um, You know, one of these uh, endless hot water tank supply systems. The plumbing company didn't even really know what kind of smart thermostat I could put in at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And so you have hot water. So again, that's another little bit of a, a different story as well. And who knows, that may be a future product. Uh, but uh, right now we're currently working with only electric baseboard heating uh, with uh, high voltage. And uh, you said it's only 125 bucks. Uh, when you look at these programmable thermostats out there, like you said, the Nest and the Ecobee, these things run in the hundreds of dollars. Yeah, absolutely. They're typically over $300. So uh, if you had to put a Nest, let's say one on each floor, so maybe then you have to buy three Nest thermostats, you're talking over a thousand bucks. But so we knew that our... We had to get our price point down, so we've built a very um, minimalist kind of thermostat. And if, if people can uh, see uh, the, the thermostat, if they go to getmisa.com, G-E-T-M-Y-S-A.com, they can see the, the picture of the thermostat. And it's a very minimalistic, modern-looking thermostat, and we've done everything we can to get the cost of it down and provide all of the smarts through the smartphone app as well as our cloud intelligence and then combine that with all of our major integrations, so with Google Home, Amazon Alexa, and Apple HomeKit. Well, that's kind of the exciting thing. Uh, people can control uh, your thermostat with their voice, essentially. Absolutely, and those are the three main players that our pre-order customers have really expressed, and uh, uh, Amazon has been doing this the longest, so we have a lot of people using the Amazon Alexa, uh, but both Google Home and, Am- uh, and Apple are, are not far behind, and this is, the, this is the future, right? We'll be able to just uh, say, hey, I'm headed upstairs now, change my bedroom to 23 degrees, or uh, hey, Siri, turn the uh, basement temperature to 16. Um, so that's the future, and our thermostat already works with 
all the, the leading smart uh, voice assistants. Well, you know, I have a bunch of friends that have electric baseboard heating, and, uh, you know, they, they say, very expensive uh, if you keep that running all the time. Uh, these types of thermostats could help save money, can't they? Absolutely, and that's the real uh, kind of uh, key difference is so uh, with a nest that's controlling a furnace, yes, you'll get energy savings from it, but the energy savings from controlling your electric baseboard is even more. So that's why that the payback period for MISA smart thermostats for controlling uh, high voltage you're looking at a payback period of only two or three years. So the savings are phenomenal, and you combine that with the, uh, the, uh, the convenience and that smart technology piece, and it's a, it's a great package. We're talking with Joshua Green from MISA. They make uh, some new uh, programmable smart thermostats uh, for electric baseboard heaters. Uh, where can people find out more information, Joshua? Absolutely. So you can find us at getmisa.com, G-E-T-M-Y-S-A.com. Uh, and you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter as well. Fantastic. Uh, when we come back from the break, are you looking to upgrade to the new Samsung Galaxy S9? Well, we've got a hands-on review from one of the experts, Patrick O'Rourke from Mobile Syrup. You're listening to Get Connected, brought to you by London Drugs here on the Chorus Radio Network. Back after this. You are back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here in studio today. We still have lots of tech to talk uh, including our app of the week at the end of the program. Before we get there, I want to talk about the new Samsung Galaxy S9 that was just released yesterday. Uh, big buzz uh, in the market. Should you upgrade? On the line, we've got our friend Patrick O'Rourke from Mobile Syrup. Thanks for joining us, Patrick. No problem. Thanks for having me. So uh, big uh, big launch, uh, the S9 and the S9 Plus. Uh, they've got the two models, uh, one with a 5.8-inch screen and one with a larger 6.2-inch screen. Uh, you've actually had a chance to get your hands on these. Yeah, I've, I've had it for a couple of weeks now. I was down at the, the launch event in, in Barcelona. So I spent quite a bit of time with, with both the, the regular-sized S9 as, as well as the S9 Plus. What are some of the, uh, the, the new features that Samsung uh, are touting to get uh, users to, to upgrade their phones? Sure. So I, I've described the S9 and the S9 Plus sort of as Samsung's iPhone 8 in a lot of ways. Um, it is an upgrade over the S8, but it's pretty much the same device. Most of the upgrades are on the software side of things. Um, and, and of course, there are some hardware, uh, hardware upgrades as well, like there's a, a new processor in it, the Snapdragon 845, it's 30% more powerful than the previous one, but uh, the bulk of the changes, they're all software-related. And I think the one that most people are going to notice first is the camera. So the S9 Plus has a dual 12-megapixel camera now, um, and both phones also now have uh, what's called a variable aperture, which helps with low-light performance. You're able to take pictures better in the dark. Um, and it also helps on really sunny days, too. The aperture kind of adapts to different conditions. Um, and then the other big feature, I would say, is, I guess, Sam, it, it would be Samsung's take on uh, Apple's AR emoji, the sort of cartoons that follow your face with the iPhone X. Um, these are called uh, AR emoji instead of Animoji. And they're very similar to what Apple's doing, a little less accurate, and the technology behind them isn't quite as impressive. Uh, but they're fun and they're interesting. They kind of make this cartoon version of yourself that you can then animate and send to friends and place in real-world situations. Um, so those are the two big draws of, of the phone this year. Yeah, talking about those uh, AR emojis, uh, I actually had a chance uh, to try that out uh, on uh, an S9 um, 
it, it wasn't that accurate in creating an emoji of me. <laughs> like, uh, it yeah, made me yeah. it made me bald and and brown, which you know, great. <laughs> uh, but that's not what I look like. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the the creation process isn't the greatest. Uh, the, the the sort of cartoon of myself wasn't wasn't uh, pretty very accurate either. Um, I mean, it looked like me a little bit, but not really. Um, and then the actual underlying technology, like the the face tracking, just isn't there. There are situations where the air emoji just wouldn't track what my mouth was doing. It wouldn't track my facial expressions. Um, and overall, just the experience is a little off-putting. There's a little bit of an uncanny valley there, is, is what I thought. Yeah. Um, it's almost just like a lesser version of what Apple's doing with, with an emoji. Let's talk about the camera. You mentioned a, a few features uh, there, and, and cameras are such an important part of smartphones now. Is it enough of an upgrade on the camera and the software associated with it? for people to upgrade? Yeah, so, so that's tough. I struggled with that in my review. Um, I would say that it's a pretty significant upgrade. The low-light performance with that variable aperture is better than anything I've ever seen before with a smartphone, um, even when the phone's set to auto mode. And it does allow for a little bit more versatility. I, I was hoping that um, it would allow for uh, what's called depth of field, where the background of a photo is blurred and the foreground's more in focus. You can do that a lot with smartphones right now, but it's usually software trickery. It's, it's processing that's happening behind the scenes. I was hoping that this variable aperture would allow uh, for that mechanically, sort of the way that you do it with a standard, uh, a more expensive DSLR or something like that. Um, but that, that wasn't the case, unfortunately. But that said, it's, it's a great shooter. It, it is a minor upgrade, so it really depends on how important photography is to you in terms of your smartphone. Uh, let's talk about some of the uh, the biometrics. Uh, you know, with the Apple iPhone 10, they introduced uh, face uh, recognition to unlock your phone. Uh, Samsung with the S9 and S9 Plus, uh, they still have the fingerprint reader on the back, which they've repositioned, but they're also touting that they've improved, uh, you know, the face recognition and iris scanning as well. Yeah, so Samsung has a feature called Intelligent Scan this time around. So it checks your irises. It also checks your face. Um, and it, and it kind of gauges under the conditions what one's going to work better. And if neither work, uh, it still logs you in if it's close enough to being accurate. So it's not technically um, incredibly secure, but it does, in my experience, it's quick. logs me in super quick to my device. Um, and it works more consistently than what I experienced with Apple's Face ID. Um, that set of securities, your concern, you're going to want to stick with a fingerprint because uh, in my opinion, that's probably the, the safest and most secure way to to secure your phone. Um, so really, it's in the way I see it is it's less of a, a new feature and more uh, Samsung taking what they've experiment, experimented with with the Note 8 um, and the S8 and kind of combining it into this broader intelligent scan uh, setup that uses both iris scanning and facial recognition to log you into your phone uh, quickly and conveniently. Uh, just quickly to jump back to the camera, I forgot to ask about the, the super slow mode. All these reviews I'm seeing of this oh, phone, yeah, yeah. everyone everyone's using the super slow mode. Yeah, that was the one I missed, actually. So the, the super slow mo mode, is it's great. It's awesome. It's really cool. 900, 960 frames per second video um, is really fun to shoot. It can make even the most mundane situations look great. Um, like I, I experimented just, just filming cars going past, and it looks really fascinating. Um, and Samsung's made it pretty easy, depending on what you're trying to capture, uh, especially in auto mode. You kind of set up this little box on the display. Once an object travels through the through the box, in theory, um, slow-mo video should be recorded. 
In practice, it didn't really work that way for me. Um, it depended on what I was trying to capture. Uh, anything that was water-related wouldn't be able to be captured in auto mode, which is disappointing. There's a few other situations where it didn't work. Um, with manual uh, slow-mo, I had much more success. But that said, manual is also a little bit finicky, right? Because you have to you have to time that exact moment that you want to capture the slow-mo video by tapping on the screen. Um, and that's pretty hard. I, I got better at it the more I used it. But it, it was... Um, it wasn't as easy as I expected, but when it does work, it works great, and the resulting slow-mo video is, is usually pretty incredible. So a uh, little bit of time left here. Uh, in your opinion, should people upgrade? I think for me, if you already own an S8 or a Note 8, uh, there probably isn't enough here to warrant an upgrade. But if you own an older Galaxy phone, maybe the S7 or another Android phone that's a couple years old, this is definitely worth picking up. Um, but it really depends on what phone you're using right now. And it's important to keep in mind that it's it's certainly uh, an, an incremental upgrade. This isn't a complete overhaul. The phone looks so similar to the S8 that when I was doing my review, I had to, to label the pictures so our readers would be able to tell the difference between <laughs> both phones. The actual physical differences, um, they're just not there. Like It looks almost identical. Like you mentioned before, the fingerprint sensor, that's really the only big physical change, moving it sort of under the camera rather than beside it, which which is a great move, mind you, but it's still, the phone overall looks pretty much the same as the S8, and I think that's going to end up being a bit of a detriment uh, to, to Samsung for this one. We've been talking with Patrick O'Rourke from Mobile Syrup about the Galaxy S9 and S9 Plus. Thanks for joining us, Patrick. Thanks for having me. When we come back, it's App of the Week time here on Get Connected. Stay tuned. You are back with Get Connected. i got Graham back here in the studio. We've uh, got time for our app of the week. Don't forget to listen to our other sister show, The App Show. It's on every Sunday, 10 a.m. Vancouver time here on CKW 980. And it goes across the course radio network, so check your station to see what time uh, it's uh, on uh, on a weekly basis. And it's an hour-long show about all the coolest and greatest apps for iPhones, Androids, tablets, and smart TVs. So we're going to give you a little taste. What's the app of the week this week, Graham? So the and the app of the week actually is a port. So it's a piece of software that's been put on other platforms that's coming to mobile platforms. Uh, and this week it is uh, Player Unknown Battlegrounds Mobile soft launching in Canada. Oh my God! Everyone's playing that on Xbox. So this right is a, this is a big deal. Um, this is a what they call a battle royale style game. So you have a hundred players that parachute in from a plane into a, a fictional island. Uh, they drop down with nothing but their parachute. They have to find weapons and ammunition. And as the playfield slowly decreases in size, uh, there's a, sort of this storm that will kill you if you're stuck outside of it. Uh, they have to fight each other, kill each other, and be the last person standing. It's kind of like The Hunger Games, but with uh, guns and teenagers. Wait, hang on. That just sounds like The Hunger Games. Um, <laughs> so they, they're bringing this to a mobile platform. And like you said, um, you know, Microsoft has it on the Xbox One and the Xbox One X. It's also on PC. Uh, this thing's an absolute phenomenon. So it's coming to mobile and it's soft launched in the Google Play Store, possibly with iOS coming very soon. Uh, so when it comes on the um, uh, on the mobile platform, are you just playing against other mobile players or are you playing against Xbox players? You're playing well? against other mobile players, which was yeah. probably qu- quite good because uh, if you're playing against PC players, they've got that advantage with the mouse for aiming. Uh, with Xbox players, you know, obviously there are the two... Uh, uh, analog sticks. Yeah. So being able to use a mobile device can be a little bit more clunky, which is why you want to stick with other mobile yeah, players. It's a level playing field. Yeah. And again, the game that is called Player Unknown Battle- Battlegrounds Mobile or PUBG Mobile. This is going to be one of the hottest uh, games uh, for uh, smartphones out there. Uh, Graham, thank you so much for today. My pleasure.
Mike Agarbo, Graham Williams for Get Connected. Don't forget to listen to the app show tomorrow at 10 a.m. here at CKNW 980. We'll see you again next time. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season 6 of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.